0: Okay. I'm going to go ahead and introduce uh, Chrissy. Uh, she's an, a
1: prominent ex-evangelical writer, speaker, and advocate. Um, she was with uh, Lauren O'Neill, co-editor of the essay anthology Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. She is a, a senior correspondent for Religion Dispatches, as you can see a uh, link to her article um, in the chat for anybody who wants to go and read it, it's very interesting. Um, And her work has appeared in numerous magazines, including peer-reviewed academic journals. She has a PhD in modern Russian history from Stanford University. How she got over into this, I don't know, but I'm glad she did. And even more impressive, she taught at USF a few years ago. Uh, She's a senior researcher with post-secular complex project at the University of Innsbruck. And this is a project that, uh, about religious moral conflicts in contemporary society, in particular conflicts regarding religious freedom, gender, and sexuality, and bioethics. In 2019, she came out as a transgender woman and began her journey of medical transition. And she currently resides in Portland, so we're very uh, lucky to uh, have her visit with us. It's probably a beautiful afternoon there. Um, she has asked that we hold our questions until she finishes, so please make notes of anything you want to ask or put them in the chat, and please remember to mute yourself. So Chrissy, it's all your floor.
0: Uh, thank you so much, Judy, for that warm introduction. It's my pleasure to be joining you all with uh, Atheists of Florida uh, this afternoon, and uh, it's, it's fun to have that Tampa connection because I did live there for um, you know three academic years, the 2016 academic year. And when you work in academia, you kind of think in academic years rather than calendar years. And then, you know, um, I, the last year that I worked there was 2017 to 2018. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was teaching in my field of modern Russian history, also in the Honors College, doing some uh, creative theme classes in there, including on apocalypse and, and utopia. Um, that was fun to do. I, uh, I really like the honors college at USF and um, it's a great part of the Tampa community. Um, so yeah, it's always nice to uh, get to interact with folks in, in Florida again, and particularly that part of Florida, since that was a big part of my life for three years. Um, Judy, when, when we first started talking about, you know, me giving a talk for Atheists of Florida, Judy uh, suggested that maybe I, I would tell some of my own story, that maybe it might be interesting to make it Uh, sort of personal. And um, I thought, okay, I'll I'll think about how to do that, because, uh, you know, I'm a pretty open book on uh, a lot of this stuff. I haven't written a whole lot about my experience of uh, gender and gender transition yet, and maybe I will someday, but I have a lot of thoughts on, you know, sexuality, gender, repression, queerness and and how all those sorts of things that are also related to evangelical purity culture um, factor into the kind of uh, violence against women and violence against minorities that we recently saw in Atlanta. So it is sort of a timely uh, topic, unfortunately, and always seems to be in in America because we do have a, uh, a Christian extremist problem in this country. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what some of the issues are with being indoctrinated uh, from childhood in this kind of conservative Christian environment. And um, so I'll talk about some issues that probably we all care about in the secular community. I'll then integrate certain parts of my own story uh, into that talk today. And um, I'll conclude with some thoughts about how we can use stories for secular advocacy in similar ways that people have used stories to move the needle on things like uh, public opinion regarding uh, same-sex marriage or transgender rights. Uh, Stories have power. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and switch over to share screen now and this PowerPoint presentation that I made. uh, And I'll try not to take too long with it. it's a relatively small group, so we probably could have done a more interactive thing uh, straight from the from the beginning. Um, but since I, I've never really done that in a virtual environment, I thought I'd just go ahead and make some slides to give the presentation a little bit of structure. But, you know, when I taught at USF, um, and before that I taught in other environments, I I liked to be relatively uh, informal as a as a presenter, and sure, I'd have a structure. I'd probably have a few lecture slides, but kind of just let let things flow. I think that can often be a very fruitful sort of uh, learning process, including for the instructor when you're in a teaching environment. And you know, in a situation like this, I think there's a lot we can all learn from each other. But okay, let me switch over to my slides and. Um, So is this working for everybody? Okay, so I took this title from an essay I wrote a few years back called Escape from Jesus Land, uh, where I just talked about the kind of inherently uh, abusive dynamics of of growing up with strict uh, patriarchal authority. And the topics that I want to cover today include indoctrination, identity loss, self-discovery, and learning to talk back. And that's kind of where the advocacy comes in. Let's see now. Can I? How do I switch the slides? There we go. So this is just a screenshot from from that essay that I published in, on June fourteenth, two thousand eighteen, just on my own blog. It's been one of the most popular essays on that blog. Subtitle, as you can all see, on recognizing evangelical abuse and finding the strength to reject the faith of our fathers, which uh, after. You know, some serious childhood indoctrination, which in my case included um, Christian schools for almost my entire elementary and secondary education, uh, can be a very difficult thing to do. There's a whole lot of family pressure, uh, social pressure, and also when that's been your entire social environment, where do you get social support outside of it? Or, Or how do you find yourself when you spent your whole life being told this is who you are, but also somehow feeling that it isn't? and can't be who you are, that you don't quite fit in. Um, so here is just a kind of example of what went on in the Christian schools that I grew up with, a little quote from the essay. Um, in my early years at Heritage, Heritage Christian School, that is, and yeah, that name is a code word, one wall in the elementary building was emblazoned with, "'Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord,' an excerpt from Psalm thirty-three, twelve. And we, we knew what that meant. And what that meant was that it was our job to try to get the mandates of the biblical worldview enshrined into law. And so specifically that meant banning abortion, getting official prayer and Bible reading back in public schools, because that was recognized as unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in the 1960s. Uh, and of course, trying to keep queer people from having equal rights. Those were sort of the most important things of what it would mean to be a Christian nation. And this was drilled into our head from a very young age. Um, And uh, I have an example here of little fourth grade me uh, with an essay that I actually had to write on science and uh, quote unquote science. And one thing that I wanna say here is that I was on what I would call the elite culture warrior track. Some Christian schools are very much fly by night. and They don't prepare people for for sort of life skills at all. You know, mine, weirdly, actually has some college prep courses, already did back when I was in school. Um, And I mean, not just college prep, but um, AP, AP courses, you know. So I could take some of the AP exams. We had a lot of test practice. Uh, Everyone took a practice PSAT before we all took the actual PSAT, so every student was entered in the National Merit Scholarship Competition. Um, And so the school likes to brag about how it gets higher than average SAT scores than the surrounding public schools, which are of course underfunded, whereas uh, a very self-selecting group of people, overwhelmingly white people back at that time too, uh, paid tuition to send kids to this school. Uh, and as I said, heritage is is often a code word. You know, we might associate it with pro-Confederate views, with the slogan "heritage not hate." Um, and indeed, Heritage Christian School was founded in the in the 1960s. This is when a lot of Christian schools started being founded, and um, those that were founded, particularly in in the South, were uh, explicitly founded as segregation academies, with people arguing that uh, they wanted to have whites only schools as part of their sincerely held religious beliefs. And the, uh, you know, federal courts only finally rejected uh, that uh, view in in the 1980s that, you know, you you don't get to have an exemption there. You don't get to have um, federal funding or tax exemption if you have racial discrimination in your school. Uh, So, you know, that wasn't officially what my school was about, but it was also sort of about that. It's it's much more racially integrated now, um, and I'm not entirely sure how that works to be honest, um, because it's a very it's a, just a very right wing place where you're basically told in the classroom that good Christians vote Republican all the time because we must ban abortion and keep queer people from having rights. Uh, so anyway, um, I don't think this is probably I don't know how readable this might be to all of you, but this silly little. Uh, writing assignment that that I did was these are the kind of talking points that they taught us to to say about evolution you know I wrote here that uh, evolution couldn't happen because of the law of entropy well I didn't understand entropy or thermodynamics in fourth grade but this is what they told me to say um, then of course I cite the Bible then on the next page I, I repeat the the tired old myth that Charles Darwin had a deathbed conversion you know, they taught us in, the, in, in this school demonstrably false things. Uh, so I have the hashtag there, hashtag Christian alt facts for Christian alternative facts. Um, these schools still today uh, teach children completely false things, but they also teach you how to craft a relatively formally sophisticated argument. And in, in the case of those that like my school value academic performance because they wanna turn you into, you know, uh, an entrepreneur, a doctor, a lawyer, someone who can fund missionaries, someone who can fund, um, you know, hate groups like uh, Focus on the Family uh, or the Alliance Defending Freedom or someone who can work in those groups. So that's what I call the elite culture warrior track. Uh, And I don't think that you should be able to do this to kids in schools. You know, it's I think it's not right. Um, And it actually is a serious problem because we do have public funding for the teaching of, of alternative facts. Uh, in many Christian schools across the country, uh, through vouchers. There was a great detailed report on this in the Huffington Post that came out in 2017. And uh, from the data in that report, we can conclude that there are approximately 2,400 non-Catholic Christian schools in the United States that receive public funding and that use uh, curricula that teach just false things about history and and science. Um, Give you some examples here. This was uh, a visual from that that article that Rebecca Klein published in the Huffington Post, and uh, it was an animation. So I just made each I just made different slides for each part of the animation. So little pop ups come up and show you uh, what some of the these Christian textbooks by Rebecca and Bob Jones Publishers what they teach. So this one calls evolution a destructive faith, common um, Christian right talking point that evolution is. Religion or philosophy, and not science. Uh, this one says Jews plotted to kill Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's pretty anti-Semitic. Um, this one calls slavery black immigration. Um, these are just examples of how they uh, they twist the history uh, that you get in these schools. You get a very Christian nationalist version uh, of history. Um, And then here's a quote from that article just talking about, um, you know, what this young woman uh, who was quoted in the article was taught, that um, dancing is sin, that gay people are child molesters, that uh, mental illness is a function of satanic influence. These are all common evangelical beliefs. I was taught uh, many of the same things. You know, some evangelicals are willing to uh, recognize that mental illness exists and that sometimes it's good to treat it with medication, but many are are not. And then again, from escape to, to Jesus land, uh, as a five, six, seven-year-old child, adults at church and school functions were already leading me to conclude that liberal was an antonym for Christian because Democrats murder babies and abortion is a literal holocaust, which again is a quite anti-Semitic way of um, framing that to to appropriate Holocaust imagery for their anti-choice politics, but they do it all the time. It's a whole thing. It's another thing that we could uh, talk about if anyone wants to. Um, But, you know, when you grow up just having this all around you all the time, this is what everyone believes, you're told who you are, uh, you question even just a little bit, you get serious pushback, you criticize anything, you are lashed out at for attacking everything we believe. Um, And a lot of this has to do with uh, what uh, George Lakoff called the strict father family model. If any of you are familiar with his cognitive science research on how we frame concepts uh, like freedom, uh, concepts that we use in our politics, he talks about how liberal politics are a reflection of a nurturing family metaphor and conservative politics are uh, kind of a, a reflection of a strict father-family metaphor. Um, and I just want to stress that kind of family loyalty and specifically uh, the loyalty to fathers that is stressed in, the, in these communities is quite extreme. And that, um, you know, many people who didn't grow up in these communities would probably have a hard time uh, under understanding it, but it's just kind of the way things are in um, conservative evangelical communities across much of America. So now I'll get back to talking a little bit about uh, my my own story here and where um, gender and that sort of thing enters into it. And I guess I'll I'll start by saying that It took me a long time to come to the the recognition that I was queer in part because there was simply no mental toolkit that uh, allowed me to as a child. To the extent that I understood uh, homosexuality or or queerness or anything like that, um, I was simply taught that it was evil and and of the devil. Uh, Again, sexual repression, purity culture was a big part of my childhood. Uh, The sex education was all what I like to call fake sex ed. Uh, abstinence only with a huge helping of shaming. Um, I was pretty much coerced along with my entire seventh grade class into signing a purity pledge at Colorado Springs Christian School in um, 1994. And I, of course, would have agreed at the time that, uh, you know, it's immoral to have sex before or outside of marriage. But even then, I remember just feeling like there was something very manipulative about what what was happening. Um, but so as a kid, you know, I always felt off and indifferent, but I could never really tell you why. So I just became a kid who, who lived in their head. And um, that did, I think, help me, um, ironically, to achieve academic success. Um, but I also had privilege and opportunities to do that, that many kids in, um, you know, even more extreme Christian schools or Christian schools that simply don't actually teach subjects like writing and mathematics well, which mine did. They they don't get those kind of opportunities. Um, For me, because I was actually taught some things at a high degree of academic sophistication and, and other things just pure ideology, I ended up with a lot of cognitive dissonance that created a crisis of faith from the time I was about Sixteen years old, I read the entire Bible through for the first time, and um, you know I saw contradictions in there. I saw things that I did not really think seemed moral, and um, I went and talked to our pastor at that time about it. And at first, he tried to be to seem very understanding, and uh, he gave me a Christian apologetics book to take home and read. And I don't remember which one it was. It wasn't very famous. It wasn't. Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel, who was a rising star in evangelical circles at that time, but it was in question and answer format. And I just remember finding the answers a little too glib. So I went back and told him that I still had doubts. And suddenly he made it about me. And he told me that I had opened myself up to demonic influence. I must be harboring sin in my life. Uh, because if I had looked over this apologetics text, and I still you couldn't see the Bible as an errant. Well, then something is clouding the Holy Spirit from influencing my ability to read this text properly. Um, that that text being the Bible. So you know, I was very very scared for a long time that that could be true. I was very afraid of hell, um, and I consider this uh, an example of spiritual abuse. You know, you you shame someone for for their doubts, but that is very common in um, evangelical. Environments. Uh, You may seem understanding at first, you kind of try to reel them in, but if they keep asking questions, if they keep doubting, you shame them, you tell them their doubts come from literal demons. Uh, And this guy very much believed in literal demons and literal spiritual warfare. I actually smashed one of my alternative rock CDs at that time (laughs) in the hopes that it might eliminate uh, demonic influence from my life. Uh, So, you know, sort of like the record burnings of your. Um and uh yeah it, it just I was very conflicted for a long time and I think part of it was that I uh, was so afraid of being wrong and uh, that fear was also just kind of inculcated in me from a very early age the fear of literal uh, hellfire of hell as eternal conscious torment but the one thing that I will give that pastor credit for is that he uh, did tell me that hell might just be annihilation of the soul because that's you know, more humane than um, eternally burning, which I mean, I guess it is, but that's a low bar. Um, so anyway, when, when your whole life has been this, this attempt to make you be something that you can't be, when you start to deconstruct that, to, to borrow a term from postmodern theory, uh, and one that's also popular now in circles where where people are breaking away from um, conservative Christianity, you know, you really have no idea who you are and you have to sort of figure it out. And so I, I spent over a decade having very frequent suicidal ideation and uh, thinking myself of an impossible person who shouldn't exist because I simply you know could not deal with how i was breaking away from my family's religion and politics it was just so strongly instilled in me that you can't do that and yet i also couldn't be authentic to myself and my own commitment to truth and values as i understood them and and stay in the fold like that uh so it's, it's just it's hard to explain how emotionally agonizing that was And I just kind of wrestled with it into into my well into my early 30s. Um, And I I would say that I was, you know, frequently haunted by fear of hell still up into my 30s, though not as often as I had been in my 20s. Um, Even long after I stopped believing in it, I mean, if you'd asked me at age 25, do you believe in hell? I would have told you no. But sometimes I was still afraid of it because there's so much trauma to work through that at times it takes our emotional lives a long time to catch up, sort of, as it were, to our intellectual lives. And yet I did think this was mostly an intellectual struggle until at age 33, I finally felt more confident as as I was learning about myself, learning who I wanted to be and what I wanted. And I realized that I, actually identify with, with women more than men, I realized I didn't have to be a man and that trying to be a man had never felt right. And I also realized a little bit later that I can be attracted to both women and men. So I had never really allowed myself to admit that to myself before. But looking back, I can see lots of examples in my childhood of where I had um, just really a sort of disproportionate shame because that was going on underneath and I I just couldn't even see it. So I don't know how how much sense that might make to to people who haven't experienced anything like that, but that's the best way I suppose I can try to um, explain it. And around the same time, and years before I came out publicly as transgender, uh, I did start speaking out publicly about evangelicalism and about things that are wrong with evangelical subculture. Basically, I finally accepted that I had to do that and, and just let the chips fall where they may. I had started doing some writing for popular audiences. Um, and I was going to just risk, you know, my whole childhood uh, social network and uh, see what happened. And, you know, I have actually ended up in a fairly good place in terms of relationship. my relationship with my parents. A lot of people don't. In a situation like this, a lot of people end up being cut off by their parents or having to cut their parents off. Uh, so I, I'm lucky it worked out that way, but I, I certainly couldn't have been sure that it would. Uh, in fact, I remember one time uh, when I was growing up and I was either in my late teens or early 20s and uh, so, you know, young adulthood, I guess. And um, I watched Fiddler on the Roof with, with my parents and then afterward I asked them if they would cut me off if I married a Jewish woman. They got so angry at me because they had no idea how I could even ask the question. Uh, and yet I never really could believe them as a kid when they said they would love me no matter what because the ideology that, that they taught me and that I was also just taught and absorbed in the evangelical environment taught me that what, what they say is unconditional love is actually very, very conditional. So I really didn't know. And my parents were super <laughs> offended that I asked the question. I think it's pretty funny now. Anyway, um, I was not actually able to start gender transition until two thousand and nineteen, the year I turned thirty nine And here are just some examples of you know where I've gone since. Um, and overall uh i I like you know the progress that I've made. Uh, I would like to be able to dye my hair again, as you can see in the early pictures here but I can't because of the pandemic, but hopefully soon. But, you know, anyway, um, we can talk a little bit more about what transitioning has been like if if anybody really wants to. But uh, now I kind of want to end on a couple of um, notes regarding what telling our stories, I think, can, can do for secular advocacy and how maybe we should go about that, just some suggestions. Uh, Some of them may be controversial and, of course, I'd be happy to discuss them. We don't all have to agree. But I do think that um, we really need to fight the kind of fundamentalist indoctrination that takes place in uh, Christian schools and Christian homeschooling environments. It's very difficult to do because there are a lot of tricky questions uh, about parents' rights versus children's rights and also just about where government intervention may do more harm than good and I certainly don't have uh, perfect answers on this, but I do think we could probably mostly or all agree on uh, the issue of public funding for uh, Christian indoctrination is, is really something that we should fight to see made unconstitutional. It, it is unconstitutional, but um, the courts are currently stacked against that view. Uh, I also wanna say I've published some work on how Radical Christian right-wing organizations have been exploiting pandemic conditions to recruit uh, people into the kinds of homeschooling programs that uh, can be sources of radicalization. And again, just thinking of current events, you know, um, not only was the uh, Atlanta murderer from this kind of background but uh, so was the Poe synagogue shooter. Uh, the Austin bomber was a Christian homeschooled kid. Uh, so there, I think there is a pattern there and, and most of American society is, um, considers it too taboo to face that pattern. Um, but uh, one thing we, I think that would be valuable to do would be to advocate for the United States to ratify the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. We are the only UN member state that has failed to ratify that convention doesn't mean that all those who have ratified it actually live up to it, of course. But I think ratification would be a good thing, and it is something that is fiercely opposed by the Christian right. Um, we need to advocate for secular standards in accreditation so that people who care about accreditation, uh, you know, will actually have to use better textbooks than the ones that are currently used in Christian schooling and Christian homeschooling environments. Um, and, and uh, you know, perhaps we could push for it to be seen as neglect if um, children are not given um, textbooks and, and education that's up to that standard. Though again, this is difficult, and most of the battles here will have to be fought state to state because of the messy structure of American federalism. Locally, it can be important to try to um, you know have some influence as well. And one important thing to do, and certainly in a state like Florida. Where vouchers are a big problem um, and where you know public schools can be very hit or miss is to run for school board. Um, and then, yes, advocate for the sensible regulation of homeschooling. And I think that should include things like making sure that homeschoolers are not subjected to medical neglect, that they um, see a doctor at least twice a year, that they also have other meetings with uh, mandated reporters just to make sure that they're not being abused Uh, i don't think those would be over the top interventions um, from the state though some people may disagree but now just on the issue of stories um i think that you know we can we can make progress by leveraging the power of social media and just the connection that human stories make with other people uh to change hearts and minds and this is something that is usually necessary for the expansion uh, of civil rights. So if we want to think about children's rights to um, not be uh, subjected to edu- educational neglect, to, to have the chance to, to learn everything uh, about, say, evolution and science, for example, um, I think stories are gonna be part of changing that. And, and there are a lot of people who are now trying to tell those stories with hashtags like exposed Christian schools, for example, on Twitter and expose Christian homeschooling. And I'd like to see more, uh, more things like that and uh, in the hopes that it would eventually get the media to pay more attention to, to the issue, because there are a lot of ex-evangelicals today uh, telling our stories and um, sometimes still feeling like, like we're not heard, but you know, um, feeling that we miss out on a lot of things in, in our childhoods and we're damaged psychologically by a lot of things from our childhoods. Uh, and that, you know, if we're going to talk about Christianity in the United States, that should be part of the discussion. Um, now, here are some things that I think that uh, help for secular people to leverage the power of stories. Uh, we don't want to forget nuance here. This might be the most unpopular opinion I have on the issue, but I don't think blanket anti-theistic statements are, are helpful at all. So, you know, even when I talk about Christianity, I try to avoid talking about all Christianity uh, because some of it is quite liberal and inclusive. And I uh, make a point of working with both secular organizations uh, and religious social organizations that are interested in working with someone like me. And uh, they they do exist. I have been involved with uh, an interfaith center in Indianapolis and with uh, Christian Theological Seminary. There, I've also done work with the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, including very recently. Those are really good folks there and they're willing to listen uh, to atheists and to, to work together around um, shared values. Um, I also do think we need to advocate for secular representation in political structures. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening there right now. Sarah Levin has been doing great things within the Democratic Party, which is, encouraging and yet of course you know we still see president biden very much using the faith rhetoric and uh it's great that the democratic party has uh, recognized the contributions of secular americans but i'd like to see you know more recognition more influence something like equal time haha not going to happen anytime soon but you know we should push for it um and i think that um those who are uh more liberal or to the left in america need to learn to speak intelligently about pluralism and religious freedom because if we only have people on the on the right and people who are theocrats using those terms then then they dominate and frame the conversation if we don't play we lose so i think that's also something helpful to do and i can talk more about how i think we can do that if anyone wants to talk about that Uh, and i do believe then um, that stories will help to change hearts and minds, change the conversation, eventually you change policy possibilities, or you just shift public opinion to the point where not so many kids will be, be, you know, forced to grow up with this anti-queer, anti-woman, anti-science Christianity. So that's really all I have to say about that in the immortal words of Forrest Gump. so I'm now happy to take questions, comments, or just discuss You know, anything related to this presentation or maybe even not directly related. <laughs> so I'm gonna stop the screen sharing uh, there. Thank you.
1: Um, I do want to, uh, uh, whoops, sorry, um, talk a bit about the, the Empty the Pews. Because that seems to me a lot about storytelling, and and I've not read it, so I'm I'm just going on some um, uh, things that, that I have read about it. And I apologize for not having read it, um, but I do think that I, I just watched this movie *I Pastafari*, which um, I don't know if you've seen it, but I had never heard of it before. And
2: I, I, I haven't before seen
1: it. And Daniel Dennett is interviewed in there and he talks about the importance of storytelling and sharing our stories um, in changing people's minds about atheists and atheism and and society in general being more secular. Uh, So I'd like to to hear more about the Empty the Pews and how that process went um, and a little bit about that.
0: Sure, absolutely, and thank in an act sharing, of uh, shameless self-promotion, I just <laughs> dropped the Amazon link to yes, the book <laughs> in, in the chat. But uh, yeah, let me say a little bit about where the empty the pews slogan came from. It started as a hashtag uh, in August two thousand and seventeen, and it just was something that I came up with spontaneously on Twitter in the moment because uh, I I was angry uh, about. The, uh, the Christian rights, basic, you know, either silence or just kind of justifying uh, the racist writing that happened in Charlottesville, you know, the, the Unite the Right rally and the, the violence in which Heather Heyer was killed. And um, so you had evangelical leaders like Franklin Graham either say nothing about it, or like um, uh, Robert Jeffress, who is pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas, which uh, well into the 60s was a very segregationist church, um, he went on uh, CBN, Pat Robertson's network, right? Christian Broadcasting Network, and uh, sat down with one of their main interviewers and told them Trump does not have a racist bone in his body. And it's so unfair for everyone to say that this is racist and Trump is a racist, you know, uh, because Trump had just made his very fine people on both sides comments, right? So some some very fine Nazis there carrying Tiki torches and chanting, "Jews will not replace us" uh, in, in Charlottesville. Uh, so I I knew from personal experience just how much of of this. Um, Toxic ideologies inculcated in evangelical churches, and they would deny to their blue in the face that it's um, they're racists, but you know they would they would support this this kind of these kinds of expressions of racism, and they would support Donald Trump and go on TV and tell people that he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. So I said, if this is the kind of church that you're going to, you know maybe we need to leave those churches, or if we have already left them uh, long ago let's tell our stories of leaving and I came up with the hashtag enter the pews and for a while there a lot of people did tell stories with it of why they had left toxic christianity and it was a wide variety of people who shared stories and i i emphasize at the time that this hashtag does not have to be anti-religious i don't see it as anti-religious across the board i see it as targeting a very specific kind of religion um christian fundamentalism and evangelicalism is fundamentalism. Sometimes it's just fundamentalism with, with better PR and you know slightly nicer rhetoric around the edges. Um, so some of the, some of the people who use the hashtag are still Christians, but they've gone on to churches that focus on social justice. Maybe some are Unitarians now or some are neo-pagans and some are atheists and agnostics and, and so forth. But I made it very clear that as far as I was concerned, the hashtag is for anybody who uh, you know is from this kind of background and, and wants to expose it, and that was where I started hashtag advocacy, and then a few years later, you know, my friend Lauren O'Neill and I, who had met at Stanford, um, we ended up co-editing this anthology of personal essays by people who left uh, various kinds of conservative Christianity, including evangelicalism, uh, the LDS, church, Mormonism, uh, and, and conservative Catholicism. And it's not uh, just a collection of sort of, you know, here are the intellectual reasons that I left. It's it's a collection of personal essays. They are they are deeply emotional. Uh, a lot of people, maybe in atheist communities, I think sometimes resist, you know, this idea that um, we we maybe should be putting emotional things out into the public sphere. But I think you're going to actually reach a lot more people that way if we talk about how our emotional lives and uh, our identities and our intellectual lives are interconnected, you know. So these stories, they, they actually, um, they land in different places. There is one good essay in there that is uh, an anti-theist essay uh, called A Better Dream, and we decided to end with that one uh, by Isaac Marion, who is mostly a science fiction writer, um, but he wrote a really just a kind of a beautiful uh takedown of uh conservative christianity used a lot of beautiful metaphors and you know talked about it as sort of um uh, a game that people play and if everyone could just stop playing it maybe we could come up with something better uh so you know we we have that kind of voice in there and then we also have voices of people in there that are you know now i moved on to a kind of very different looser sort of faith or well i'm very ambivalent about god now i don't really believe in him but sometimes i kind of do or we let it we let all that stuff be in in that book because we thought it was actually just important to kind of highlight people's real experiences and we put a lot of emphasis on um diversity of different kinds in there including you know people who became sort of staunch atheists and agnostics and people who didn't but also you know, racial and gender diversity and, and so forth. Uh, and Lauren and I are currently working on a um, follow-up volume to that where we're going to go to even sort of more fringe fundamentalisms and also just groups outside Christianity, like ultra-Orthodox Judaism, uh, hoping to have some ex-Muslim essays and, and kind of try to, uh, you know, continue the ex-fundamentalist dialogue expand that conversation and it's related closer to conversations around children's rights Uh, because you know for a lot of these people we're we're unpacking what happened in our childhoods and and what we think was was wrong with that um so uh empty the pews you know after that initial round of storytelling on social media it kind of just stuck around on on twitter as Kind of a protest hashtag. People use it when the Christian right does something horrible or, you know, when there's another story of uh, sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church or the Catholic Church, people tweet those stories with the hashtag empty the pews. Should I answer the questions that are in the uh, chat box? Judy? Can't hear
1: you. Yes, I was muted. Never mind, <laughs> <laughs> um, There's a, a few questions in the chat box. There's not a whole lot, uh, but there was, uh, I'd like to go ahead and let Jim ask his while I get that pull out some things that were sent to me privately and also uh, what's in the public chat
0: box. Okay, I'll make sure that I do get to that then, but okay. sure. <laughs> uh, Jim, I, James, I would like,
3: know? I'd like to speak to, a lot of the issues that you have raised because they are of particular interest to me as an activist, an atheist activist, and also as a human rights activist. Um, One of the things that I really picked up on here at the uh, tail end of your uh, presentation was the decrying of blanket anti-theism. The reason that I want to comment on that or uh, address that is because when I observe the theist community, they are all about blanket anti-atheism, humanism, secularism, the LGBTQ community, science, any science that might call into question their beliefs, any history that calls into their, question their beliefs, any ethics, ethical ideals that call into question their behavior, uh, any notion of sexual autonomy, of sex education, reproductive rights for women, gender equality, and the list, I could go on and on. They are unabashedly not the slightest ashamed of blanket condemnation. And so I see a standard, a double standard, because they would readily condemn me for making blanket condemnation of their standards of ethics and inclusiveness and their behavior, their hate crimes against humanity. And that's exactly what I call them because that is what they are. They destroy lives, they damage lives of people who are different only because they are different. And when they indoctrinate these children, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is the most egregious of all of their behaviors. When they indoctrinate their children to continue these abuses these crimes against humanity they need to be challenged and they need to be challenged at every turn and they need to be challenged forcefully
1: can we then, not uh, with- Chrissy address some of your concerns again, yeah
3: I'm going to stop right now
1: okay good thank you uh-
0: well, I certainly hear you there. There are uh, a lot of theists who behave that way uh, in, in America. There are mostly uh, Christians. Um, certainly there's some of that patriarchy and anti-LGBTQ views among Christians of color and in the black church. On the other hand, the black church has uh, you a know, very important history of fighting for civil rights. And uh, most of the pastors that I have worked with and found that it's been really productive to work with them are African-American pastors. And they do see my identity as valid. Uh, And they are willing to give atheists a seat at the table and treat us as equals. So I'm not calling for a double standard. Um, In the uh, writings that I put out on things like pluralism, and I see someone, uh, ask a question about that in the chat, and I'll drop some links in there. You know, I, I, and I made a little infographic about pluralism that I can point people to. Uh, I'm calling for reciprocity, and in some cases, just a, a kind of, uh, you know, choosing your battles sort of ethos. You can certainly have the, the, the idea that uh, religion overall does more harm than good, and still work with religious people who are working to do good in the the world and who do respect you and treat you as an equal in society. Um, And I also wanna say that, you know, religion is actually a very difficult thing to define. And that uh, when we define it basically as as false beliefs um, or beliefs that cannot be proven, that's actually a very Protestant Christian way of thinking about religion. Uh, For example, if you look at Jewish communities or Buddhist communities, Uh, There's a lot more diversity in terms of even things like do you need to believe in God at all? Or is this just a kind of useful set of rituals and practices and grounding for community and an interesting framework for processing values that that you happen to like? Uh, You know, so even in Orthodox Jewish communities, many of them, it is perfectly fine to be an atheist and a practicing Jew. And so when I talk about nuance being necessary, I, I'm, I'm not trying to save Christian supremacism, which I think needs to be dismantled, but I, I am also saying that you know, not only is it you know not all Christians, but also not all of religion is Christianity, and not all religion even requires belief in God. Uh, so some religion is compatible with pluralism and human rights, and, and frankly, some is not. Fundamentalism is not, and that includes fundamentalisms across. You know different kinds of faiths. So I'm not calling for the tolerance of intolerance. Uh, you know you can only tolerate intolerance to a point, or you know as Karl Popper pointed out, you you end up with intolerance taking over, right? Um, which is exactly why you know I think we we need to be so uh, vigilant against people like those uh, white supremacists who who marched in Charlottesville because yes on the one hand you have free speech on the other hand you know if you're not careful uh people like that will use uh manipulate concepts like free speech and also freedom of religion in order to take those freedoms away from everybody else so to navigate pluralism in a healthy way in a democratic society we have to have you know equality we have to not let any one group dominate any others um at the same time and i recognize that many of us have uh, very legitimate anger toward religious people who have uh, done a lot of harm. We, pragmatically, we do need to realize that there are religious people on our side on these issues and we actually need them on our side and I think we need to be talking to them. So that's really where I am there. Let me find a few things to drop in the, in the chat link uh, with respect to what I mean when I say, you know, we should learn to talk about uh, pluralism and that maybe we should go lighter on the anti-theism.
1: Thanks, Chrissy. Um, mm -hmm. Bill, do you wanna ask your question now? Notesworthy?
2: Yes. Uh, Thank you, Chrissy. This is uh, a very good topic for our group to consider. And you obviously have studied this uh, to a much, much greater extent than most of us have. My question is sort of a historical one Um, and I'd be very interested to know your view of where we are in the cycle of Reformation and counter-reformation. And it seems to me that over the last 150 to 200 years, we have been in a period of reformation. And the uh, The historical perspective about race, religion, uh, diversity, all of that has been challenged in ways that prior to 1800 just could not have happened and never did happen. And so here we are today uh, with religion under attack at every turn and they are counterattacking as hard as they can. And I would just be interested to know your perspective on that.
0: Sure. Uh, well, so I am a part of this post-secular conflicts project, though I don't have an affiliation with the University of Innsbruck itself, but just with the academic project. And, you know, it may it may be the last technically academic peer-reviewed university type thing I ever do, or, or it may not. I'm not entirely sure because I'm mainly a freelance writer now. Um, but Um, In in the post-secular conflicts project, there's a lot of interesting, and and the literature that we've been been reading, as well as the stuff that we've been producing, there's a lot of interesting reflection on the secularization thesis, uh, you know, as part of modernization theory. And um, there are many people now who who see, uh, with, you know, this this backlash that you're talking about from uh, fundamentalist religious communities, if You know, if you look at the Islamic Revolution in, in Iran and uh, the rise of the Christian right in the United States, um, the rise of the Orthodox Church again in post-Soviet Russia. Uh, by the way, how American evangelicals and European conservatives, Catholics and even and Protestants uh, work with the Orthodox Church and, and how those groups network to, to pursue anti-human rights goals is one of the main topics of the post-secular conflicts project and something that I published policy research on myself. So that's, that's an important topic. Um, uh, when you want to talk about Russian influence, it's been, it's been a big topic over the last few years. You know, The Orthodox Church plays an important role. Um, but yeah, this kind of backlash has led people to question whether modernization is inevitably accompanied by secularization and, and what exactly that means. Um, and, you know, my own sort of take on it is that I don't think that religion is ever just going to fade away and, and disappear. Um, or it's highly unlikely, but I, I do hope that uh, we can curtail the political power of fundamentalism. And that's where I see the, the, the backlash right now doing, doing the most damage. And, you know, you can look at this from, a more, fr- from more of a framework of secular politics as well. You're right. That after periods of human rights gain gains in history, we often see severe backlash. Uh, so I mean, go back to the French Revolution, and you know, then you know, look how it became the French Empire under Napoleon, and then it's a <laughs> republic again, and then it's an empire again. Uh, you know, there there is often uh, a strong fight by those with power and privilege, and, and certainly in Western cultures, that would include uh, Christian clergy um, to raid. Retain their power and privilege. So I I don't know. I mean, history is not really a predictive discipline. Um, But I I would say we are in a a cycle of severe backlash now. And um, but what I can't really say is where where that lands for the United States or the world generally. Um, We we've got to fight back against the culture warriors. And I hope the pendulum swings the other way soon. But you know. But I also think it's important that when we say we're fighting back against the culture warriors, again, we avoid saying we're trying to destroy religion or something like that, you know, because I just don't think it's going to actually help us pursue our goals.
2: Thank you.
1: Does that answer your question, Bill? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Before I recognize Mr. Peterson, um, there is a couple of questions in the um, chat. Uh, Someone wants, Dan wants to know what album did you burn? (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh yeah! I just realized I sent the last few links I put in there not to everybody, but just to one person. So uh, I'm gonna gonna send those again okay. with the. Um, so what album? It was um, it was Our Lady Peace's debut album. Now I'm forgetting what it was called, but the band was called Our Lady Peace, and some people thought they were very blasphemous. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um,
1: and also. Um, Dan again wants to know, do you think that Charlottesville, Charlottesville led to the assault on the Capitol and if so what could possibly be next?
0: That's an interesting question and I think you know it's very rarely that just one thing leads to another thing. Uh, History is complicated and things have multiple causes but that Charlottesville happened and you know we we didn't do much to um, you know deter this and then we saw all these like rallies of people with with guns denying mask ordinances and they attempted to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And, you know, this was sort of widely tolerated under Trump. Uh, I, I think all of that, yeah, kind of sent the, as well as the QAnon conspiracy theories that were driving these groups. Um, I think all of that paved the way for January 6th to to happen uh, because Trump encouraged this behavior throughout his his presidency. And there are some people who for whom it just doesn't take much encouraging who want to, you know, dismantle the United States democracy and and remake it uh, in a Christian nationalist form. Many of them claim that they're the true patriots, Tea Party patriots, you know, who really respect the Constitution, but that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, It's a very strange reading of the Constitution in any case.
1: (laughs) Unfortunately, we have a bunch of judges that also
0: have a strange yeah. reading of the Constitution. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a serious problem. And, and you know, I'm personally for the expansion of the Supreme Court to restore fairness, but I don't think it's going to happen.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think it is either. Um, Mr. Peterson, you have your hand up. And you're muted. I tried to unmute you, but wouldn't let me.
4: <laughs> hi it's been it's been great listening to all this and i 've learned a great deal. Um, I understand that you uh, did your doctoral thesis in Russia, and I was wondering uh, with given your uh, presence there over some period of time, if you observed anything that would lead you to believe that the experience of Russian culture and history offers us any clues as to our own social and religious, if you will, evolution? Hmm.
0: I really like that question a lot. So, uh, well, let me give you a little background there. Um, I did most of my studying for my Ph.D. not in Russia, but in Palo Alto, California, or, well, at at Stanford. But um, I did spend a lot of time in Russia. And then after I finished my Ph.D. in 2012, when I was on the academic job market and there was sort of nothing in America and I was perfectly open to the idea of some more international travel, I had a job offer to go and, um, and, and teach at an institution called the Russian Presidential Academy of National Economy and Public Administration uh, in, in Moscow. Yeah, one of those great Soviet acronyms, well, post-Soviet, but so in fact, um, they had consolidated Two, what had been communist party schools, but one was, you know, more of the, the late Soviet liberal sort of communist bent, and the other was more of the sort of classic statist, somber, grim communist, classic communist party that you might think of, apparatchiks. Um, so there was a, a, what was called the Academy of National Economy, that was the more liberal one, and the Academy of Public Administration, that was the more conservative one in, in, in the Soviet Union. Um, some years into post-Soviet history, they merged those two together, and so when it became RANHIGS uh, or RANIPA in English. RANHIG uh, stands for Russkaya Akademiya Narodnogo Khazaysa i Gosudarstvennaya Sluzhba Prezidentsya Russkoy Federatsii. Well, you can see why they use a lot of acronyms over there, but. but um, so uh, that was a very interesting time to go to Russia, but my, my experiences of going to Russia start all the way back in 1999, and in fact, if you want to read the story of that, it's my own essay contribution to Empty the Pews, and this is something that it's still a little embarrassing for me to talk about all this time later, but I went there as a short-term uh, evangelical youth missionary, on, uh, two times actually, in 1999 and 2000. Uh, my crisis of faith was pretty intense by that time, particularly by the second time, but I kind of hoped that I get, was giving it one last-ditch effort, you know, to save my own faith by trying to convert other people, but it ended up completely undermining my faith because I observed a lot of things that really shattered my heroic image of missionaries, <laughs> but that's, a, that's another, another story. Um, so yes, and I spent time in Russia, of course, during my PhD studies, I also taught English in in Vladimir Russia from 2004 to 2005 before I went to grad school. And so I have a pretty extensive history of spending time in post-Soviet Russia. And it's been very sad for me to kind of watch the way that it has become increasingly uh, authoritarian and sort of traditionalist, traditional values, as Putin likes to say, or theocratic authoritarian with a a lot of influence of the Orthodox Church uh, there in uh, kind of, um, setting the tone on some things and controlling certain legislation like the decriminalization that just happened of, uh, domestic violence, um, and, and so forth. Uh, the Orthodox Church always has a hand in that sort of stuff and they've even started weirdly making some headway and putting some restrictions on government funding for abortion, which is very, very new in Russia where, uh, and, and this isn't healthy either, but in the Soviet Union, you know, they, they focused a lot on the guns and not the butter, right? Because they, they sort of had to, all the same, all, well, at the same time, claiming that uh, they had the best country in the world and, you know, all, all of that. They never caught up to uh, the United States on consumer goods production. And uh, so a lot of people couldn't get condoms or contraception in the Soviet Union. So a lot of women got a lot of abortions. Um, it was just sort of how it was done, and that persisted into post-Soviet times. Uh, and, and so to actually make, put any restrictions on abortion at all, and, and they're, they're still very proud to have universal health care there, although it doesn't always work particularly well. Um, it, and it's kind of changing too, where there's more possibilities for insurance and private clinics and things on the market, but in a very sort of messed up and uneven way. Um, so, you know, to put any restrictions on it at all is quite a radical move to see happening in, in the Soviet Union, so that, post-Soviet Russia. So that they've, um, you know, <laughs> put, uh, they've made a little headway there. It's just actually really kind of shocking. Um, so, but lessons, lessons for ourselves in my experience of observing Russia. Uh, you know, the last time that I spent in Russia, well, it wasn't technically the last, last time, but the last time I spent a long period of time there. Uh, Living there from 2013 to 2015, you know, I had a front row seat for the major changes, geopolitical shifts of of the recent years. I was there when when Russia annexed Crimea, and um, I saw the uptick in nationalism. It was was quite uncomfortable. I mean, I would not be immediately recognized as an American on the streets there. Um, So it wasn't like a lot of it got directed at me when I spoke, people could also tell that I had an accent, but they couldn't place it as an American accent, which was good at the, <laughs> you know. Um, because, uh, I mean, when I first started going to Russia, like, everybody in Russia wanted to meet Americans. And, and, and then, you know, once things really started to change there around 2013, there's a lot more anti-Americanism again than, than there used to be. Uh, and Putin is also trying to capitalize on that old Russia-United States rivalry and, uh, you know, one, one parallel that I do see there, even though we've had uh, a much stronger economy than the Soviet Union and then post-Soviet Russia, um, is, is that we have, uh, you know, similar, uh, at this point, you know, even more in post-Soviet times, a uh, similar wealth gap. And so, a similar gap between, between the rich and the poor and, and a similar sort of uh, unequal distribution of resources in society. That was also there in the Soviet Union. But again, because consumer goods were, were hard to get, it was nothing like with the post-Soviet oligarchs. And it often had more to do with what perks and privileges you could get from your position or your communist party membership than actually with your salary. Um, in the Soviet Union, it simply would never have happened that a CEO makes something like three or 400 times what an average worker makes, which is quite common in the United States. But in post-Soviet Russia, you know, it's, just, it's gone through the roof. Uh, and, and it's come along with you know this this reinvention of the sort of Christian Russian Empire ideology that you might associate with someone like like Dostoevsky, but it's just kind of the flip side of the Soviet coin. It's all about Russian greatness, and within that kind of what I would call sort of toxic patriotism, you have a lot of flourishing conspiracy theories. You have a lot of xenophobia. It's, it's in many ways actually similar to what I have observed in the United States. And I think that both Russia and us in, in post Soviet times have been in sort of an identity crisis. Who are we without the Cold War? And I think all these decades later, we still have not really figured that out. And that is a, is a, is a messy place to, to be Uh, And so it's leading to, I think, to some poor consequences uh, in in both countries. And I'll give you some examples of things that I actually think are very similar about Russians and Americans. And, you know, which sort of is why I suppose our countries have the history of being sort of uh, frenemies or they make good frenemies, you know. Oh, in fact, one time when I was doing an intensive Russian program in Vladimir Russia, I uh, came home from my, my tutoring session. Uh, you know, where I was being taught advanced Russian and walked into my host family's house and there's the live-in boyfriend that my host mother had not told the program about in the first place. And he's sitting at the kitchen table drinking with, as it turns out, a uh, police lieutenant. Uh, And um, I didn't know he used to be on what they then called the militia, the, the Russian police. Uh, I don't know why he's no longer on the force. It might be because he's such a drunk. This this particular guy, Andre, but anyway, he says, oh, our American comes home. And the police lieutenant says, an American, our best enemies. And uh, then I knew I was just going to have to sit down and drink with them for the next couple hours. But, uh, <laughs> and, and it's a funny thing, too. Drinking is very gendered there, and everyone was thinking of me as a man, you know, because I had not you know, fully processed or come out to people. So I was treated that with, to that sort of strange Russian masculinity. And then there we were. Uh, but yeah, um, so enough, I guess, you know, sort of post-Soviet nostalgia, but things I've observed that are, that are similar. Uh, so once I was trying to, uh, well, I, I had tickets to go to a, a local agricultural festival in a town outside of Vladimir. that's a very beautiful historical town called Suzdal with a lot of historic monasteries and things that you can observe, a famous film a famous film by Tarkovsky, Andrei Rubloff was made there. And uh, so, you know, two Russians, two Americans, we were going to the Cucumber Festival that they have every July in Suzdal, And we sat down in the bus because there is no railway line out there, or at least there didn't used to be. And we had gotten our bus tickets early enough to have seats. And then there were some people who came, got their tickets later and they had standing room only. And we were speaking to each other quietly in English at that time, this was 2005. And I hear these Russians who are standing in front of us start talking to themselves in Russian saying, well, would you look at this? These foreigners coming here and taking our seats. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they had the George Soros conspiracy theories by the way, before we did. So um, I I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're similarly infrastructure poor in some ways. We have a similarly sort of skewed economy. It has worked better for us up to the present, but I am not that optimistic about the future. And I feel like both us and, and post-Soviet Russia are in this kind of post-Cold War ideological hangover of you know this, this idea of being the two worlds great powers is uh, something that a lot of Russians and a lot of Americans have a hard time letting go of. And it feeds into the conspiratorial mindset and the, the toxic you know, masculine politics with dictator wannabes like Trump and Putin coming to power.
4: Uh, May I just ask one more small question? It seems to me that one of the predominant characteristics of uh, civilization during the course of the last 150 years or so is a distinct strain of authoritarianism and its characteristics uh, of religion and politics uh, just the broad consideration of history and culture over that time and still to this day uh, w- one of the most uh, dangerous things that we're uh, presently experiencing is the resurgence of authoritarianism in this country.
0: Do you think that should be one of our main uh, targets? I think that is a serious concern and so it's hard to target something as broad as authoritarianism but in a, in a word yes I do. I think we need to be Uh, watching for uh, the erosion or the, you know, direct rolling back of civil rights and human rights because it absolutely is happening. And very often uh, we do see a hegemonic religious institution uh, behind that. Sometimes it's very kind of diffuse, like in the United States where, well, we actually do have certain organizations, Protestant and Catholic, like. You you know Opus Dei on the Catholic side, or the, the many Christian right lobbies that are more Protestant, like the Homeschool Legal Defense Association or Alliance Defending Freedom, that that have a lot of influence. Uh, so there are certainly specific organizations that are pushing for a more authoritarian America that that we need to have on our on our radar so we can strategize about how to oppose them politically. And on the global stage, yeah, I mean there are just huge questions about how do we promote uh, human rights in, in this time of uh, rising authoritarian backlash. Um, it's tricky. Thank you.
1: Yes, it is. Thanks, Jim. Uh,
5: Joe Reinhart? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, um, yes, I, I hate to uh, belabor the obvious, uh, but I think there's one thing that if you had to pick something that would be the most powerful leveler, that would reduce the influence and power and voice of the religious right. That would be taxes. Hmm. Any movement towards people more willing to begin to
0: pressure the government to make these parasites
5: pay their own way?
0: Um, It's it's a difficult question. I mean, we've seen some Democratic politicians raise the possibility. So, you know, I, I think it's not a bad thing to raise. I certainly think one area where we can fight this battle, and, and maybe win, maybe starting at the state levels, is, is with the, the voucher funding of, of Christian schools and other religious schools. I mean that's uh, um, and maybe federal funding for these religious schools in general if they're going to discriminate on the basis of sexuality or gender. Many of those schools have Title IX waivers, uh, so I think if you start to look at that from a policy standpoint, then there's very possible uh, policy solutions that could be fought for. Tax the Churches works pretty well as, as a slogan. I think it's harder to find a policy path to that in practice just from a wonk standpoint. But if you want to look to specific situations, and we have precedent with Bob Jones University losing its tax-exempt status over racial discrimination. Um, so there's a lot of federal money taken for uh, schools that nurture this kind of religious authoritarianism, and here I'm using the term schools broadly, uh, federal and state money going to Christian colleges and universities, uh, many of which uh, push anti-science, anti-women, anti-LGBTQ ideology on their students. Um, I think it's, it's still a very big giant to slay in America. It's an uphill battle, but I think that's the front that maybe we fight on. And maybe we could work to overturn the Johnson Amendment as well. But um, you also got to think about enforcement. And um, it's very rare for the IRS to enforce the rules that we already do have. So if they would just enforce the rules a little more, um, that might work as well. But you definitely see huge outcry that we'd have to find a way to do. Almost every
5: state in the union has a Blaine Amendment in their constitution. All they have to do is enforce the existing law it's pretty clear. Nobody gives any money to any religion, any way, for any reason. That's pretty clear.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, if the Supreme Court would allow that to stand, but given, uh, you know, recent cases, I don't think it will at the pre- at the present moment. Well, well they're
5: not- for being racist. They're anti-religious, of course, which it wasn't.
0: <laughs> well, right. I mean, that whole issue of uh, public schools were originally anti-Catholic is, is actually true, but it's a really bad rationale for making policy now because obviously the situation in public schools has changed quite a bit.
5: Whether it's whether that's true or not, uh, you still ought not to be required to pay to indoctrinate uh, uh, other people's children.
0: Oh, I 100% agree Doctrinate. with you. I, I agree with you, not Justice Roberts on the, on the issue. I'm uh, to say nothing of Alito. But, uh, <laughs>
1: yeah, the courts have been quite um... Um, on our, not on our side on that issue. The Supreme Court even said that vouchers were okay. And as you know, we have a terrible time with that in Florida and it's getting worse. So I encourage everyone to contact their Congress people because they're in session and they're <coughs> moving forward with a lot of bills that are very destructive
0: to the public school system.
5: Maybe we can um, storm the Capitol.
0: <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, they'll definitely let us in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but,
1: this is, but this is where building alliances with other groups is very important, and especially other religious groups, because they're going to listen to Episcopalians before they listen to us. And right. most Episcopalians are not all, obviously, but yeah. most of them are pretty liberal. Churches and agree with us on um, the separation of state, of state and religion of government. Yeah, I think I think
0: you're right about that, Judy. We we don't have to like it, but you know that is kind of the, the way things are. At the same time, we can keep pushing for more secular representation uh, in political and legal structures where where we can. And and right now, I don't see any prospects for that in the Republican Party. But the Democratic Party has started to make a little headway. Oh. So so let's keep pushing <laughs> yeah
1: uh, last year i submitted a, a recognized religious freedom day to our uh city or our governor our hillsborough county uh, commission and they refused to even consider it and i'm sure mm-hmm. it's because it came from an atheist group um but yeah we have to keep pushing uh jim young you had something else
3: i wanted to touch again on uh these crimes against humanity. Everybody recognizes that the Holocaust, of course, is a crime against humanity because of the atrociousness of it, Uh, but not everyone recognizes or realizes that the assaults by the theist community on gender equality and reproductive rights and uh, the assault on science and brainwashing of children are uh crimes against humanity now so my question is twofold do you agree that these are crimes against humanity and secondly is there any crime against humanity that a theist would not commit in the belief that they had god on their side
0: i mean that's a, those are very sort of broad questions. Uh, I think indoctrination is child abuse. Uh, I do think it's it's a kind of you know mental and emotional abuse. again, how and to what extent the state can intervene in that is a very thorny question that I certainly don't have the complete answer for, but I would like to see us regulating uh, and monitoring homeschooling much much more than we do. Homeschooling has been deliberately deregulated by the Christian right, mostly through the um, lobbying organization, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which far too few people know about, since the 1980s. And the result has been, well, we do have a state-by-state patchwork. Uh, even in states with some regulations and protections, there's very little enforcement. Uh, um, so- what,
3: what would be your criteria for a crime against humanity?
0: Well, I would probably go with the UN's criteria. And if you want to talk about what constitutes a genocide, I mean, targeting a no, religion... No, not, not uh,
3: because there's more to, to my uh, thinking that genocide is not the only possible crime. Oh, community. no,
0: no, it's not. But uh, I would point in, out in, that targeting in, a religion for destruction does fall under the UN's Genocide Convention.
3: Well, I'm not doing that. So we can clear that up. But what I am doing is condemning crimes against humanity committed by theist groups, whether they're Christian or Muslim or any other. Uh, So any, any action, in my opinion, that theists take with the intent to damage the lives of others or obstruct human progress is in its essence a crime against humanity. I don't know what the United Nations definition is. Well, I may seem too extreme. I don't know.
0: I mean, I do think that definition is rather overbroad because, you know, is political lobbying to uh, take someone's rights away the same as actually taking the rights away successfully? Uh, Does that rise to the level of a crime against humanity? Uh, That's getting pretty close to policing thought crime. Um, So I don't I don't know. I I think it's a thorny issue and I I can't settle it today. Uh, I, and, you know, certainly not, not every theist is willing to commit, you know, the most heinous uh, of actions. Most theists don't become modern-day Abrahams, ready to slay Isaac because God says so. Uh, there's a whole, you know, gamut there. But even those who have pretty fundamentalist beliefs don't always turn into monsters. Um, so, again, it's just, it's, it's all somewhat murky and complicated.
1: It is very complicated. I, I know that many of the evangelical churches in this country have supported a lot of effort in the African uh, continent to uh, get homosexuality banned and to actually impose the death penalty on them. And then, but I mean, it's not just Christians. It's fundamentalist of any ilk, be they Jewish, Muslim, or Christian, or, or mm. any, any fundamentalists are basically pretty much all the same in terms of what they want to
0: do. Um, to, to my mind, I mean, passing those laws and certainly acting on those laws is a crime against humanity. Yeah. So, you know, well, to, criminalize hom- to criminalize so homosexuality is absolutely a crime against humanity yeah. in my view.
3: I think you have to look at these particular agendas individually. So if there's an agenda, to for, for instance, to pass blasphemy laws and subject people to uh, death or imprisonment because of what they say, uh, we would have to look at that and and determine is that really a crime against humanity because we are in fact destroying human rights, we are in fact damaging lives of people who are different, we are in fact damaging human progress, and we are in fact uh, prohibiting freedom of conscience. So. Any of the items, the excesses, the abuses that theists are guilty need to be judged on a one-by-one basis. My war is not against belief. My war is against the uh, actions taken because of belief, because people do act on their beliefs.
1: Thank you, James. Um, Chrissy, uh, we're getting close to the end of the session. So I was wondering if there's anything you wanted to share before we leave.
0: Um, I think I missed that question uh, way back earlier about the Overton window, which is just uh, a political science term uh, that refers to the uh, the window of socially acceptable discourse around a particular topic. Right. So uh, how do you make concentration camps possible? Starts by talking about them, but it also starts by using dehumanizing rhetoric, right? For example, and then the, the Overton window will move such that these, I, these things become thinkable that weren't thinkable before, right? So the Overton window can move in such a way that makes good policies for human rights more possible or, or in a way that makes them less possible. So when I talk about using st- uh, our stories to shift the Overton window, Uh, for secular advocacy, I mean that we want to shift it uh, in in ways that allow for more uh, freedom of conscience and for the realization of human rights. Um, I don't really know if there's anything else in particular that I want to say. We've covered a lot of ground here today and I really appreciate the active engagement and the thoughtful questions um, and and the pushback. Um, You know, we always all have to agree on things uh so i want to thank you all again for um inviting me it has been a pleasure uh so um i hope we'll meet again sometime and um it's nice to sort of virtually be in tampa for a little bit on a sunday afternoon (laughs) well you're
1: welcome to come anytime (laughs) thank Um, you next week we will be having um someone coming in and talking his name is thomas Breyer. And he's coming to talk to us about finding common ground in the company of strangers. So I think this will be a a good opportunity for us to explore building alliances and talking pluralism. And I am going to make uh, the links uh, you said uh, about those resources for doing that kind of thing available to our group. And I'm actually going to explore getting somebody from some of those things to come and talk with us because it is, we we really have to, um, we really have to move in that direction because otherwise we're just, we're going to end up in a place where none of us want to be at the rate and the direction of who has the predominant uh, microphone right now uh, and getting most of the attention. So thank you very much for coming. It's very interesting and I look forward to seeing you at the American
0: Navy <laughs> Thank you, Judy. I've had a lovely time. Thank you all. Thank you. Um, Have a great, uh, great evening. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you too. And uh, we'll see you all next week. <clears throat>